Welcome to Le Flaneur Politique with Dr. Michael DePersi. Don't forget to check out the show notes at politicalscience.com.au. Today I spoke with Cindy Bin-Tahal. Cindy is a school leader with some 27 years experience and has taught with middle and primary schools in Australia, including the Torres Strait, in North America and in Asia. International mindedness is an all-inclusive term that looks at ways to, I suppose, understand and comprehend and operate in diverse uh, areas internationally and, and at home. And it encompasses things like multiculturalism and cultural sensitivity and so on. But it's a more nuanced way of understanding diversity and uh, operating in this sort of environment. And Sydney's been teaching this approach with uh, students in Australia and overseas. And I've asked her today for some of her insights into how she actually goes about and practices uh, teaching international mindedness with her students. Hello, Cindy, and thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me here. So I'd like to ask you some questions about your international teaching experience, and I'm going to ask you about your teaching philosophy, your pedagogy, but what I'm really interested in is some of the lessons that you've learnt, especially around your international uh, and Indigenous experience, especially with dealing with people from diverse cultures and diverse backgrounds, because I understand that you becoming quite advanced in your uh, ability to get some really positive outcomes with children and I'm hoping to see how we can translate this to a university experience. So to, to start off with, can you tell me what lessons have you actually learnt through your international teaching experiences? Sure. So with working internationally, it's so important to understand the backgrounds of which people are coming from. It's also important to be able to really understand the way that the mind works. We pay attention to multiple intelligences. I really embrace the work of De Bono with thinking hats. I think this is a great tangible way of helping, even if we're not using the thinking hats per se as a metaphor, as teachers planning for and ensuring within our classroom that we are working through a multitude of ways of thinking about thinking with that metacognition all going on. The other thing that I pay a lot of attention to is Myers-Briggs work with personality types and of done this through a range of forums, both working with the adults that are the teachers and education leaders in their classrooms, but also then translating this for children. Again, whether this is a conscious thing that's done with children or whether or not it's just planned for through the teacher planning to ensure that they're considering the personality types of the children and the way in which learning's being delivered to resonate with and assist them to become a lot more broad-minded and conscious of the way in which they learn and think for themselves. So in an international setting, when we've got all these different cultural groups coming together, something that really has become so obvious to me is that even if you have the same family and same children from the same cultural and religious backgrounds, that individual can differ in the way in which they operate as a learner. So if we can get the fundamentals right in understanding how the brain works, understanding the role that personality types play in us being learners, and we can facilitate and generate a multitude of entry and exit points for learning for individuals, we can be a lot more successful in what we're delivering and what we're having as our education results. So how important is this internationally though? I mean, is did you sort of learn the, some of these experiences from your experience teaching in public schools in Australia or was it particularly different in the international schools? What it was, 
mainstream classrooms, anything that I have ever learnt to do with special education, working with our Indigenous Australians, working in de- internationally, everything that I have ever done in a mainstream classroom, it translates into all of these different settings. And what happens is good practice just needs to be a lot more magnified. As a teacher, if you have... There's this cartoon that I absolutely love and I I present it to any teacher or school leader that I'm working with where there's a lot of blame going on of the student or the staff member isn't doing what they're meant to. Well, we need to be looking at ourselves as the teacher or the leader in that environment. I taught my cat to whistle. Great. Show me how. I said I taught it. I didn't say it can. If we can refine our teaching so well that we're accommodating the needs of the individual, the individual will learn. The UK, since the uh, it was the late 90s, I remember being in a Queensland State School principal workshop and we had a professor from the UK speaking with us about the No One Left Behind regime, which dovetailed into the American systems, Everybody Counts, Every Child Counts. And what happened was... There was an absolute push. There was in the American system, it was about children repeating until they acquired what was required of them at a particular year level for curriculum outcomes. What they were finding there was there were no middle class white children in classrooms that were having major struggles. It were minority groups and these children were being pulled further and further behind from their peers. In the UK system, I think that while we had a professor in the late 90s talking to us and early 2000s, talking to us saying, don't follow the system that we have been putting in place. We're over-testing our children. We're switching them off from education. We're creating anxieties in them and the like. Where I see the UK at now is, and I'm working predominantly from a UK system over the past four years now in my career, what I'm seeing is there's a real expectation for children to make progress. That's happening in the Australian system as well, I feel, with the national assessment in literacy and numeracy and so forth. Uh, it's, it's reporting more on the outcomes, but at the onset, there's a real... We're becoming more consciously aware of expecting children to be successful in their learning. And if we can give teachers the skills to understand how to get those children to those juncture points where they are value-adding to their own learning and progressing and seeing themselves as teachable and seeing themselves as capable, then we can really make a difference. And I think that the magnifying glass is really on teachers and schools to be accountable and do this. When we work with minority groups, when we work with um, Indigenous students, people from different cultural backgrounds to our own, it can magnify the difference in learning styles and systems. I had an Indian father say to me one day, Miss Cindy, I'm Indian. I don't know how. We were talking about how to assist his son in being creative and um, critically literate. And he said to me, as an Indian student, and he is a very successful academic man and does very well with his career, But he said to me, as an Indian student, I was taught to sit, listen, learn and regurgitate. And that's still the case in a lot of Indian schools now, based on my understanding of which parents have informed me of and me assisting 
students who are transitioning from an international school back to a local Indian government school, very much sat in rows, very much textbook driven, very much regurgitating of facts. And so when we take these children into an international setting, we need to teach them how to be learners. We need to teach them how to be open-minded and access information and think for themselves. So there's that level of of teaching that's going on, as well as then the way in which they're receiving and interpreting and working with information. How different are these students in international schools uh, compared with Australian public school students? International students by default... And and we're talking about primary and middle school, right? We are talking about that So what's middle school? Middle school is lower high school, so it depends on the setting that you're working with, but stereotypically they're children who are 12 to 14 years of age. Uh, in a lower high school setting, middle school. So like year seven, eight, nine sort of uh, thing? In or? Australia, year seven, eight, nine, yes. Yeah, right, right. Okay. Yeah. yeah, so how different are they? So the international students have moved internationally, whether that's only been once from their base country to an international setting. Although we need to be clear about the fact that some children attend international schools in their base country as well. So the reference point I'm using are international schools where every child is an expatriate from their base country. Right. And with these children, by default, they are more global in their thinking just by traveling and moving internationally. For any adult that's done that, it's quite a significant change in your life that you go through. So for these children, they have moved away from the security and and familiarity of their base country into a new environment internationally with different currencies, often different languages, different environments. Do the students suffer culture shock like adults can? Absolutely, some can. Every child that you meet, it's absolutely unique depending on that individual. So some of them really embrace and relish and get excited by it. Change, even if it's incredibly positive, it's stressful. So people are undergoing stress and, of course, children undergo stress as well. We need to consider the way we're transitioning children into this new learning environment. So for some, we might decide with the parents if they're presenting as quite stressful that we will do a graduated entry into the school where they come for periods of time. Technology is phenomenal. Being able to use things like Google Translator and the like, if they're from a language group that I don't have staff that can be able to support and translate for them with their needs, we can use technology to assist with that. So there's a a phase of transitioning. Within four weeks, usually children are settled in their new environment. And then from there, there's the social aspects that are taking place as they establish friendships with new children. And that is just a natural way in which these children become more internationally aware, comparing same and difference from a social perspective. But then in the international classroom, there's this absolute opportunity to celebrate and recognise where we align with other cultural groups and where we are different as well. In a mainstream Australian setting, the difference is that there's still that dimension and that element of being so able to... So there's still diversity, right? There's still diversity within an Australian context, absolutely. It's just that it's so more magnified when you've got 40 different nationalities represented in one classroom or across a couple of classrooms. The classrooms are predominantly smaller, but some of these children are representing two or three countries where they have a um, Chinese mother, a Dutch father, but the father might be Dutch who has a Dutch where there's a Dutch grandparent and a grandmother from Switzerland or something. So I've got children who are speaking up to seven languages at the age of five. 
Seven. Absolutely. Does that make them smarter than the average or does it assist in their intellectual development? So some of the children that I have worked with who speak these up to seven languages absolutely fluently, the the other thing that's happening in an international setting, and this could very well be a stereotype, uh, I acknowledge that. However, these children predominantly are moving with parents who are academic themselves and value education and so invest a lot of time and energy into their own children. So in an international setting, the things in a mainstream Australian or I've also worked in mainstream Canadian government school, you have diversity of the children in your classroom when you're in the base country. You also have the complexities that sometimes these children are facing where there might be safeguarding issues for that child, child protection issues. There could be uh, income issues for the family with loss of wages and so forth. And that's all being suffered out and experienced in the base country. When you're an expatriate, by default, you usually will have to be employed to be there. You usually have to have a certain amount of revenue to have your child in an international setting. So what happens in these international schools is predominantly it's a lot more of a protected environment as far as the exposure of, how would we say, economic and social challenges that the children might be facing. So that's been a a big variance as well of what I've seen in the international to the mainstream base country school settings. So how different would it be for a student who is in their home country but attending an international school versus a you know, let's say second or more generation Australian student dealing with diversity in their own Australian school. I mean, is there a big difference between that international school environment for somebody in their home country compared to an Australian student in a diverse school in Australia? So the curriculums that the children are accessing are going to play a part in that. In an Australian system, there's the Australian context, Indigenous perspectives and things like this that are being taught through the histories and different subjects. In an international context, when we start looking at different international curriculums, they lend themselves to the child understanding their base country, but also then looking at other in-comparison countries. So an example could be uh, politics in your base country and looking at the political systems in your base country compared to the political systems of either the host country of your international school or two other political systems in cultural settings that are different to your own. And that could be learning through their peers as well. So they do their own research studies and understanding, then they will work with other people from different backgrounds and settings to compare what's going on and have a look at same and difference. So when you look at Canadian, American, Australian, different national-based country curriculums in the Western world, the histories and context of learning is usually associated with that base country in Australia. We also look at our Asian neighbours. So you've taught in Australia, in the Torres Strait, in Asia and in North America, right? Yes. Yeah, wow. One of the things that I'm really keen to hear about, and, and you told me about this over the last few days, we've been talking about this idea of international mindedness. Now, I'm really interested in this because we've been looking at, with our university students, way to think about not so much addressing or dealing with diversity, but we're finding that there are lots of culturally embedded issues that appear in our curricula that students from other cultures are not necessarily working to their strengths and we're sort of assessing them against a different cultural capability which may or may not reflect the actual learning outcomes of what we're trying to achieve and and so this idea of international mindedness was interesting because from what I was reading about it my understanding is that 
this movement is encouraging the use of the term international mindedness to replace things like diversity and multiculturalism and cultural sensitivity and so on. What I'd really like to know is what does this, from your own experience in your own practice and, and how you use this concept, what does it, what does international mindedness try to do? And can you actually give me some examples of the let's say, the traditional approaches to recognizing or incorporating diversity in the curriculum versus this international-mindedness approach? Sure. So firstly, international-mindedness is really about building up a sense of interconnectedness that exists within all humanity. And with this digital era that we're living in, more and more so the world's becoming a more accessible place, isn't it? While living internationally with my own children, they're able to Skype, they're able to Snapchat and all these things that I didn't even know about, having a teenage child and a that mix that they can access and really connect with people right across the world so my daughter who's now been she's lived five years of her almost 15 years internationally she has established and maintained friendships right across the globe so I, I think that that's international mindedness and interconnectedness is very much what we're focusing on when we're focusing on international mindedness we're all interconnected we've got the same and differences all going on as far as what you were just saying there about learnings for a university learnings for an institution on how we teach and how we really develop the sense of international mindedness fundamentally humans are biologically wired in ways that cross boundaries of culture and diversity and so forth. And this is where establishing critical thinking, this is where looking at our personality types, this is where looking at gardeners, multiple intelligences and the way in which we think is also crucial and fundamental to forming opinions that go beyond stereotypes, go beyond recognising and being able to label superficial things like cultural dress flags and the, the foods and the building styles. It goes beyond all of that. So you were talking about multiple intelligences, okay? And, and you know, when we teach leadership, we will talk about things like um, the IQ, you know, intellectual quotient, then the emotional quotient, and then the social quotient and the, you know, like a diversity or a change quotient and, and all these different ideas of multiple intelligences. But the problem is that we're just teaching these theories and it's a bit like you were saying, you know, I taught my cat to whistle, but it can't whistle because, you know, we, we didn't actually transfer any skills. And, and that's one of the big problems is that we can talk about all this stuff, but how do you actually put it into practice? And you were mentioning a few, and I'm going to ask you about how you've looked at this with adults, um, which it's really interesting because I teach this in theory, mm -hmm. but I haven't for years had the opportunity to actually put it in practice in a longer term. Can you tell us some actual examples of what you would do in the classroom? Absolutely. Let me give you this one classic example that's quite recent. So in living in Asia, children and in an international school setting, again, children tend to travel internationally more and see more countries than those perhaps that are living in their base country is my experience. And a lot of my students have visited and frequented Malaysia. When you fly over Malaysia, there's so many palm oil plantations going on that have taken place and replaced lots of the natural environment and of course we look at the orangutan and the concerns around different animals becoming extinct and the like what we need to be really careful of and what I generate within my school as a school leader is making sure we go beyond stereotypes making sure we go beyond the propaganda of the media from different base points so with the palm oil argument 
I was in a classroom listening to some students in a teacher talk and the children were quite passionate about the fact that they were going to choose their persuasive argument that they were going to generate around banning all use of palm oil right throughout the world. And they were going to write persuasive arguments. They were going to um, generate a lot of discussion around this and try and get as many people on board to boycott palm oil. I said to these students, tell me about this. And I asked a lot of open-ended questions for the student and the teacher around what it was they were trying to achieve. And when we really drilled down, I asked them if they've ever seen people working on palm oil farms. Yes, we have. Tell me what you were noticing. It looked like they were working really hard. I saw some a group of men walking out of the palm oil plantation with machetes. They were covered in tree sap and dirt and it was quite dark in the evening. I assumed based on the way they were presented, they'd been working all day. Why do you think they're doing that? To generate income to feed their family perhaps okay and what do you think would happen if we boycotted the conversation continued through all these open-ended questions and me working with both the teacher and the students to think through different ways of thinking and what ended up happening was these these students shifted their focus on banning and boycotting palm oil which to be quite honest, I think the propaganda that I see both on Facebook and in the mass media in the Western world comes from that angle. And I really struggle with that because I think, what about the tablelands in North Queensland where there's been tobacco farming and dairy farming and things like that? That used to be rich rainforest and vegetation. Is that How is that different? And so what ended up happening was these students have decided instead of writing persuasive arguments about boycotting all palm oil, because that is one of the few primary industries the Malaysian people have, uh, what about if they look at fair trade agreements? And what about if they look at the fact these people who are working for all of this time frame look at the income that, and revenue that they're making through that work in relation to the work that they're doing, the economy of their country, in relation to what that would look like in other settings – And let's see if we can actually be global citizens and if we can do something to write some persuasive arguments around fair trade to pledge to other governments that are trading in palm oil and see if they can't do something to get people to reflect on fair trade agreements for the Malaysians with palm oil. How old are the kids that we're talking about doing this? 11 years old. Yeah, that's fantastic. (laughs) Isn't it just? Yeah. yeah. Isn't it just? Yes. So you told me some other stories, though, about the traditional approaches. What... Give me an example of traditional approaches to, you know, incorporating diversity into the curriculum. It's challenging using the word traditional because for years there have always been teachers and educators who have been cutting edge in their practice. So I I don't like to run the risk of tiring everybody with the same brush. However, with traditional approaches in various countries where I've seen traditional, we're thinking textbook generated, traditional, often not going beyond stereotype. Teachers can be quite keen to establish a title page for learning that's about to to be presented. And I struggle with this because I'd like to really have people reflect and think about what is it that my students are getting out of spending an hour colouring in a black and white photocopy of different images. And sure, some people can justify some of that, but can we go beyond that? What are they colouring in though? What- so... This here was talking about different um, celebrations and different events that cultural groups experience. So there was a little boy, Chinese origin, colouring in. In reflection, I spoke to the teachers and I I said to them, how how can we take this further? What what are the children getting out of this colouring in? 
well, it's kind of just trying to get them thinking about celebrations. Then we were going to try and work out what they already understood so that we could just look at our planning and see where we're taking their learning to from there. Okay, well, what about we have an opportunity for children to brainstorm and list their ideas around celebrations that are close to home for themselves, partner up with somebody else to discuss two different celebrations that are going on from two different cultural groups. And we looked at De Bono's Thinking Hats. I introduced this as a concept. So this little Chinese boy had brainstormed using the uh, yellow positives that were from the celebration and the red emotions and he looked at Chinese New Year so under the red emotions he was this child was five years old and he was drawing pictures and some wording around being fearful excited Um, the positives were family coming together the the dancing that was going on and he had all of this going on 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 his page and we we sat with him And I said, tell me about what you've come up with here. And you're saying to me, oh, Chinese New Year to me, how I feel. I feel excited. I feel happy. I feel really scared. And he kept going on with his explanation and telling me what that all meant to him. Tell me about being scared. And he said to me, have you ever heard how loud the firecrackers are? Which was really wonderful that this little boy was able to really analyse his own celebration. And then he sat with a friend from a differing cultural group. It was a, a Muslim child who was looking at Hari Raya, the end of of the fasting month of Ramadan. And this child was brainstorming as well under the feelings that he had and then the positives of this celebration. These two children sat together and had a conversation about their own celebrations, educating one another on what was going on. But they were also able to then, if we think of a Venn diagram, establish what was the overlapping components, which were quite a lot actually. And then there were a few that were falling outside of that that were quite separate to their own celebration in his family. And so how old were these kids? Five years old. (laughs) Five? Five years old. Really? Yes. (laughs) Yes. That's really interesting. So obviously we've got a lot of work to do in in this space. And I think maybe this, what's happening in international schools is probably probably a good place for us to start. But tell me now, how does this, let's just call it international mindedness in, in, in your approach, but how does it translate to your work as a manager of adults, as opposed to teaching children? As a manager of adults, it's about exemplifying in the learning for the adults what it is that children also are to be exposed on with best practice. So we're looking at intellectual quality as a concept. We're looking at higher order thinking. We're looking at multiple intelligences, our own personality types, our own dispositions and how we can work in with others. The maker model is a good place to start. Carol Maker from the late 80s, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, looking at differentiation. So looking at how we can work with the content process environment and products of learning that's going on and how we can change those up to still have the same learning outcomes but address a wider group of audience and accommodate a wider group of people. And so that's something that I do in my leadership in the way in which I work with the education leaders, the teachers and adults. And then with that training, knowledge and understanding that we're practicing in amongst ourselves, that's then transcending into the classroom. And we're also helping children, teacher assistants and parents become mindful of the way in which we are wired to learn and operate and then ways in which we can access. So like I was saying before, I've given you a couple of examples of asking questions to get to higher order thinking with that example of the students that were looking at boycotting all palm oil to then looking at fair trade agreements and equity 
globally. And then with the students I was talking about that were looking at their own and others' celebrations and how they think and feel about those in their own right and then how that compares to others in other settings in the world. Right. So, But you also use the Myers-Briggs type indicators. And I understand that you've actually done this with all of your staff. Absolutely. How does that work and what are some of the advantages? Oh, look, the Myers-Briggs personality types, I have actually used it in quite a few different settings. So uh, Oz personality types is another way in which Myers-Briggs has been translated into a easier access version that children can use as well. And it's also used for adults. But with 100 staff, I have everybody conduct a personality profile from there. I believe it's incredibly important and across universities as well, I'd like to say from my experience of universities, I think in large learning organisations, the development of a team ethos really helps to create a professional learning community where we deprivatise our teaching practice and we really start to engage in our own higher order thinking about the way in which we conduct what it is that we're doing. We look at one another of where our strengths are to build that capacity. So what I do is I establish horizontal teams where there are groups of teachers and teacher assistants across year groups. Uh, This also includes the cleaners in the school, the general helpers, the front desk administration team, all of them. Everybody, absolutely everybody on staff does a personality profile. In our meeting room, our big conference room, I have a huge board that has teams grouped with their personality profile image with their uh, lettering assigned to that and that's put in the teams that are established horizontally. Then I also organise the leadership team vertically where I've got year group leaders, where I've got middle managers and so forth all coming together as well vertically to stitch together all of these teams. And so we have these smaller teams within this large learning organisation that then are stitched together vertically also. And with our Myers-Briggs personality types, what I do at the beginning of each academic year is I have every team sit together in a circle and they have their work profile from the Myers-Briggs personality type. And what they do is they read their own and they highlight what really resonates to them. There are so many aha understanding moments of where people are saying, oh, yes, I do do that. Yes, yes, that is important to me. So it helps individualism be identified and celebrated and acknowledged and planned for within that team. And it's done in a really objective way by having this external work profile put in front of us. Then from there, I ask everybody to spend some time discussing their own work profile and what their strengths are and what their natural dispositions are that is really resonating for them that they would like to advocate for. I don't, I know that some people do this. I do not go out of my way to use Myers-Briggs to shape teams. What I do is shape the team first based on what is best for the students and the learning environment and where people's skill pools are and so forth. Then we look at the personality types because as adults, we're able to identify for ourselves and advocate for ourselves, and then have conversations across the team to become harmonious and What I have found is in some teams, there might be four people with the same personality type and one with a differing personality type. So then 
the team's able to say, okay, so these people can work quite spontaneously and are able to set agendas and move quite quickly through information. However, we've got this person on our team that's advocating for themselves that they're quite reflective in their practice and their nature. We need to give them agenda items well ahead of time. We need to not make decisions in the moment, but then give some reflection time after the fact as well. So we establish some agreed and shared norms for that team that's going to accommodate everybody's needs there. Then also as individuals and teachers, we're able to understand our natural dispositions and look at our learning profile and just check in when we're planning for learning that we're not teaching to our preferences. So that's where other team members have have differing learning styles can talk with us about the ways in which they would like to hear and um, learn and be delivered different learning materials, experiences and so forth. And so that then just builds this cohesion, this upward synergy and this professional learning community. So is there anything from your personal life that drives the way that you think about and value education? From my own life experience, I'm married to a gorgeous Torres Strait Islander man. So our children are Torres Strait Islanders. So they're from a minority group within Australia. As far as education goes, when it comes to children with special needs and the like, these labels, these um, barriers for individuals from diverse or minority groups, they needn't be there. And as an education leader, I am as inclusive as I possibly can be in my practice. I advocate for this. I challenge people who are quite close-minded and think that people are perhaps better or a colonialist in their views. I really challenge that. I find that really narrow-minded and working right against international mindedness. So I guess the diversity within my own family and my beautiful in-laws is something that also fuels my passion. Also knowing firsthand children and adults with a range of special needs who contribute so significantly to this world, I just value so tremendously So, yeah, I'm a huge advocate for inclusive education and I'm a huge advocate for people from minority or diverse groups who may have barriers in place that just needn't be there. Well, it's been wonderful talking with you today, Cindy. Thank you so much for coming along. Thank you for having me here today. 